Welcome to The Creative Shift. My name is Dan Blank, author of the book Be the Gateway and founder of WeGrowMedia.com. Before we begin, I want to announce a new workshop I'm offering that I'm really excited about. I've spent more than a year planning this. It is a workshop called Launch and Grow Your Email Newsletter on Substack. It takes place on August 4th at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Everyone who registers gets access to a live video recording. So if you can't make the live call or can't attend the whole thing, um, you will get a full video replay of it. You can find out full information on wegrowmedia.com. Right there on the homepage, you'll see um, a listing. I'll also check all my socials. You'll see it there as well. So it's at wegrowmedia.com. This workshop is going to be amazing. I can think of no other big topic that I'm encouraging writers to really focus on, which is their email newsletter. This is the stuff that agents and publishers are talking about. This is the thing that really connects you with your readers over time. And to me, is the foundation to what it means to have an author platform and to be public with what you share online. So again, go to wegrowmedia.com. You'll see a thing for the launch and grow your email newsletter on Substack. Workshop right on the homepage there. August 4th. I'm excited for you to join me. Okay, so today I want to talk about the topic of taking a creative risk. And working full-time with writers, my days are filled with conversations about the challenges they face. They might say things like, hey, do I have to share on social media? Does that really do anything? Or they'll say, you know, isn't the marketplace too crowded? How will I stand out? Um, or they'll fear that, you know, all the trends are pointing away from the kind of work that they love creating, and should they even bother? Or, of course, something I think we've all felt um, at one time or another, which is, who has time for all of this? All the creating, all the publishing, all of the sharing. So, today I want to remind you of three really important things. And it's that you get to choose. I guess it's one thing, but in three different ways. You get to choose... If you create, you get to choose how you create, you get to choose how you publish, you get to choose if and how you share. And if you don't want to do any of these things, if you don't want to create, if you don't want to publish, if you don't want to share, that's up to you. It is more than enough if you want to create simply for the act of creating and never publish it, never share it, never make it social media content. There is so much value in just the process of creating. You always have permission to do that. And it's not my permission, it's just permission you have from the universe or whatever you wanna call it. You know, I grew up as the art kid. I have boxes of creative work sitting up in my dusty old attic that never was and never will be shared. And I can say I'm a better person for having created that. But if you're still listening, I would encourage you to take the creative risk if you are open to creating and open to sharing what you do. And I want to encourage you to make a bold choice of sharing that work that aligns fully with what drives you to write and create in the first place. Because these kinds of bold choices, I think, are the ones that resonate most deeply with the experiences not only that you want to have, but your ideal readers want to have. Being a part of creative work, consuming it, reading it, watching it, observing it, being in conversation with it, it's an experience that you're creating. And today I want to share two examples of people taking creative risks. One from a writer 
and one from a musician. Years ago, I met Dawn Downey, and in that time, I've watched her publish five essay collections. And earlier this year, I started noticing some recurring posts on her Facebook page. There would be a stack of her most recent book, her most recent essay collection called Listicles, and there'd be a ruler next to it with like a line on the ruler. Um, one of the ones I saw said, 100 printed, 21 left, email me today for your copy. And there'd be a link to her email, or you can go to dawndowneyblog.com. And of course, every time I saw each subsequent post from Dawn, the number of books would go down a little bit. And this really, you know, I kind of kept noticing these things. I knew that she published um, this collection late last year. And then I saw a post from her that really made me pause. And I'll read it to you. Dawn says... I'm in the process of deleting the listicles manuscript from my computer. What will it feel like when I no longer own or control this book, when it exists only in the hands of readers? Deleting the manuscript is more complicated than I had imagined. Today I found a PDF of the interior pages, probably the version the book designer sent to the printer. I hit delete. And I felt a little tension, but another piece of listicles is released. Now, when I first saw that, I had to reread it a few times. Dawn is literally deleting any copies of her book and manuscript other than the 100 printed copies. On another Facebook post, someone had asked her why she's doing this. So she had a, an explanation. She said, and this is a little long, but I think it's really important. She said, curiosity drives me. Two of my friends are visual artists, and they pour their emotional, spiritual, psychological stuff into their work. Then they sell it and never interact with it again. I was curious, what, what does that feel like? As a writer, I pour my guts into what I write, but I can revisit my words whenever I want. I can tweak those words, make them better, write that I changed my view about what I'd written before. I saw a documentary about a painter who decided to go in another direction and burned every painting he still owned, paintings he could have sold. It made an impression on me. He seemed free. I wanted to be that guy. I was curious about the idea of attachment. Every month, an organization swings through our neighborhood picking up donations. So every month, I fill up a box. Every month, I get to see I'm attached to clothes I don't wear, pans I don't use, and knickknacks I don't even like. I think about the stuff ending up with people who need it. The stuff was just passing through my life until it ended up on the next leg of its journey. I was curious, what would it feel like to treat my books like that? To trust it's only passing through my head on its way to the next leg of its journey. I'm attached to the words I string together into essays and books. If I delete the manuscript, I'm free from the oppressive feeling of being responsible for controlling its future. I'm playing around with the feeling that if I let go of the book, I'm setting it free. All of this is just so engaging and interesting and enamoring to me. I emailed Dawn asking about this, and she reflected on why this book isn't available at any online retailers like Amazon or barnesandnoble.com, and how she embraced the process of sharing the book in the way that she is. She said, 
I'm deleting the manuscript as a creative experiment and attachment, including success based on numbers. I'm selling them out of my house, so no sales stats are coming in from Amazon or Ingram. I have to tell people about the project. I have to share often. I have to tell people what the book will do for them. I have to be excited about my own work. Again, in the role that I have in working with writers, this is fascinating to me. So often writers insist that they have to do something. For example, well, you know, Amazon is the world's biggest book retailer. I have to be there even if I don't want to. But Dawn proves you don't have to do anything. You get to choose. You can take the creative risk to write, publish, and share in a manner that resonates with you. And Dawn ended her email to me with a powerful statement. She says, I'm learning that creativity creates me. As a reader receiving her book in the mail, knowing all of this changes my relationship with her book. It now feels like a process that I'm a part of, not just a possession that I own. If I keep the book, I'm keeping Dawn's work alive. If I donate the book, it moves on to another step in its journey, exactly as John says. Um, you can find out more about Dawn on her Facebook page or her website. Um, her website is dawndowneyblog.com. Downey is D-O-W-N-E-Y. Um, or over on Facebook, facebook.com slash Downey. Okay. The second story I want to share with you today about taking a bold creative risk. So one of my all-time favorite moments of creative risk is from the 1985 Live Aid concert. And in our culture today, I think that often people think of the Freddie Mercury and Queen performance as this pivotal moment, this highlight. But I think it was a couple bands before Queen, U2 performed. And at the time, U2 absolutely had a dedicated following of fans, but they had not really broken out as a band that everyone knew. So playing Live Aid to a global audience of more than a billion people was a huge opportunity for them. And now, listening to this, I understand that maybe you don't like U2, maybe you don't like Bono. I understand that. I'm just going to ask you to stick with me through this story anyway. So here we have this big opportunity. And... Bono as the singer and sort of the front person for the band, what did he do? He took a huge creative risk. And in doing so, he totally blew the band's chance to play their latest single, which was a huge opportunity for them to put it in front of so many people and hopefully get it into the charts. And he genuinely thought that the actions he took at this concert broke up his band for good. So I have a photo on my wall of a moment where Bono takes a literal leap, diving down, my estimate is more than 11 feet, dropped to the floor of the stadium during the middle of the performance. And if you look at this photo, you see a number of things. You see Bono hurling himself off the side of the stage with a plan that nobody around him understands. You see tens of thousands of people watching live and then more than a billion watching from home on television sets. You see the guy who's responsible for ensuring that Bono's mic cable doesn't get tangled, following him around, but also bewildered because he's like, okay, 
the guy I'm responsible for is leaving the stage. And you see the camera people, the photographers and videographers, are just flummoxed by what is happening. They're supposed to be facing the stage. Now they're next to him. Now they're going behind him into the crowd. This is the story of what happened. The band was allotted around 15 minutes to play three songs. In the middle of the second song, Bono goes way off script. You see him start to wander around stage, kind of exploring the boundaries of it. There's a moment where off the front of the stage, he kind of steps out and onto a monitor, which is like a little speaker that's a low speaker. You see him kind of reach out, he's getting his balance. You see the bass player look over like, what you doing? And then he kind of looks off into the distance and he just drops the microphone. You hear a thud. And he walks off to the, the, I guess, the right side of the stage. He raises his arms. You see the crowd mimic him. You see him trying to like experiment with, like, what can I do here? Then he drops down about three feet to the riser where it's reserved completely for the telephone, the television camera, which is going to move around. He moves past the camera right in front of it. He moves to the other side of the stage. He goes as close to the audience as he can get from that riser. And you see he's got this determined look in his eye. And he starts motioning with his arms, come here, come here, to the crowd. Now, there are 70,000 people in the crowd. This is an event made for television. And slowly, as the cameras go around him, you can start seeing what's on his mind. There are security guards helping a woman over the barricade, seemingly because she's maybe getting crushed or she's uncomfortable, or I have no idea, but something like that. You see that Bono is signaling, you know, to bring her up, to bring her up. But security guards, I mean, they have a job to do. They are focused on helping the crowd be safe. So they're not looking at Bono. They are helping this woman over a barrier in a very complicated situation. Now, at this time, the band has no idea what's happening. They just keep playing the same chords over and over and over and over and over again as minutes are eaten up. And slowly you can see communication happening. The woman who's being pulled over the barricade is kind of yelling at the security guard, pointing the stage, look, he, he wants your attention. And the security guard kind of looks back at him. But she's quickly whisked away off to the side, and you can see Bono become really, really frustrated. And finally, because minutes are getting eaten up, he takes action. In this split-second decision, he just leaps down the 11-foot drop. He just barrels down, drops, a camera follows him over, kind of looking down. You see people like kind of trying to catch him. And he's on the floor of the stadium. And this is the area between the crowd where security is. So there's a lot of um, empty cans there. There seems to be a lot of water, almost muddy-like. And when you look at the crowd, they are just losing it with excitement. The, the person who used to be on the stage, maybe 15 feet, 20 feet up, is now right in front of them. Nowadays, I think this kind of thing is a lot more commonplace. But back then, in 1985, certainly at a show on the scale of Live Aid, which is very choreographed, made for television, this is dangerous new territory. He continues, or Bono continues, signaling to security to bring the fan over the barricade to him. Finally, uh, someone comes over the barricade, right into Bono's arms, and they kind of dance arm in arm. And the most fascinating part about this, because I've watched this again and again over the years, is as they're dancing really slowly, his eyes are closed. His expression is just very serene and very peaceful. 
at this moment, he's supposed to be on the stage performing songs, his hit, you know, his new single with this band, projecting to tens of thousands of people in attendance and to a billion people at home. Instead, he has his eyes closed, very serenely dancing with one fan in this this kind of liminal space between the stage and the band, a space that we're not supposed to see or know anything about and is largely filled with a lot of workers, a lot of, again, a lot of water, a lot of cans, all these different things. Dances with her for a few moments. He gets back up, hoisted back up to the, 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 the TV camera riser, and now you can just hear the crowd is cheering louder than at any other point in their set. They have been in the middle of the second song for nine minutes now, which is an eternity compared to what was planned. And then he kind of goes into these lyrics, not from his own music, but from Rolling Stone's song, and he ends with lyrics from Lou Reed's song, Take a Walk on the Wild Side. You see him get back on the stage proper. He drops his mic to the floor a second time with a loud thud, and he just walks off stage. So what happens next is fascinating. His bandmates and his manager are furious with him. They were supposed to play that third song, it was their single, and whatever Bono was doing, he did not clear it with them, he did not tell them about it, and it ate up all that time. That was going to be their big break. So, Bono felt as though he genuinely broke up the band, and this happened for, this went on for like a week or two afterwards, just this total distance. But then something happened all of their previously published albums began to move up the charts again. He took this huge creative risk. It got really messy, but the world loved it. It was, as I said, a made-for-TV concert, and he showed people this one true human moment, where the embrace of two people mattered more than the headlines, how many millions or a billion people were watching, all of that. You can look up the performance on YouTube. I find it to be fascinating. And why am I telling you this story? Again, because I think that you and you alone get to choose if and how you create, if and how you publish, if and how you share. You can leave the stage. You can do something unexpected. You can create a moment that feels authentic to you while ignoring the expectations of others. And what's more, there's always the chance that this action may be the very thing that gets you the attention and validation and spreads your writing to more people. What do each of these stories teach us from a, a marketing and sharing perspective? I think it's that people want to share things that they feel a part of, and they want a story to tell. Give people something to talk about that resonates deeply with what they want to see in the world and how they want to experience their own identity. I love stories of creative risk. Feel free to share them to me with me at dan at wegrowmedia.com. Again, please check out my upcoming workshop, um, Launch and Grow Your Email Newsletter on Substack. I'm so excited about this. It is going to be packed with all kinds of useful information. It's August 4th. Go to wegrowmedia.com to find out all the information about this. Otherwise, you can find me um, at Dan Blank on social media. Thank you so much for listening until the end.